Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. When you think about things that go viral, poetry doesn't usually come to mind, does it? But as violence rages across the world, it turns out, as it always does, poetry is a fantastic unifier. So today, meet three people whose poems about war have gone viral, including the actor Anna Lynn McCord. She was widely mocked for her poem about how we would not have this war in Ukraine if she had been Vladimir Putin's mother. You'll hear why she wrote it and how she felt about the fallout. Then you'll hear from a comedy writer whose poem about how the United States always has money for war, but not for classroom supplies or affordable housing or healthcare or, or, or. But let's start with Palestinian-American poet Lina Halaf-Tufaha. Her poem, Running Orders, was written in 2014 in response to the war between Israel and Hamas, in which Gaza bore the brunt of the devastation. During this seven-week war, about 1,500 Palestinian civilians were killed, including more than 500 children, along with five Israeli civilians. Another half a million Gazans were displaced, and that's all according to the UN. I recorded this conversation with Lina Halaf-Tufaha back in May of this year, Here she is with her poem. Running orders. They call us now. Before they drop the bombs, the phone rings. And someone who knows my first name calls and says in perfect Arabic, this is David. And in my stupor of sonic booms and glass shattering symphonies still smashing around in my head, I think, do I know any Davids in Gaza? They call us now to say, run, you have 58 seconds from the end of this message. Your house is next. They think of it as some kind of wartime courtesy. It doesn't matter that there is nowhere to run to. It means nothing that the borders are closed and your papers are worthless and mark you only for a life sentence in this prison by the sea, and the alleyways are narrow, and there are more human lives packed one against the other more than any other place on earth. Just run. We aren't trying to kill you. It doesn't matter that you can't call us back to tell us the people we claim to want aren't in your house, that there's no one here except you and your children who were cheering for Argentina, sharing the last loaf of bread for this week, counting candles in case the power goes out. It doesn't matter that you have children. You live in the wrong place, and now is your chance to run to nowhere. It doesn't matter that 58 seconds isn't long enough to find your wedding album or your son's favorite blanket or your daughter's almost completed college application or your shoes or to gather everyone in the house. It doesn't matter what you had planned. It doesn't matter who you are. Prove you're human. Prove you stand on two legs. Run. Thanks. 
How does it feel reading it now compared to the first time you read it out loud? Um, it's starting to feel like running your fingers over a cut that is becoming old. Some of those edges are familiar, but like I have read this more times than I can count. And I still, I think I know it by heart, but I still kind of about a third of the way through, I, it's anxiety overwhelms me. And so I have to look back at the page. I don't think I've read any single poem of mine more than I've read this one. Um, but it is so of a particular moment. And I, I go back to that moment every single time I read it. Will you talk about that moment? Yeah. Um, so I wrote this in July of 2014, early July. It was the third in a series of three assaults on Gaza. There have been more since. But like many Palestinians, we have friends and loved ones in all different parts of Palestine. And the other thing that's true about Palestinians is we don't think of ourselves as separate. Like if I don't have a specific relative in Gaza, I don't feel less connected to Palestinians in Gaza. So it's, you know, we were all sort of in this tunnel of being aware, very aware with video footage and phone calls and messages from, you know, people we knew or people we knew of um, and social media content of people like recording their imminent deaths live. We were in this just tunnel of it, you know, for days. And it just became so overwhelming. Um, and at the time, what I did, the work that I was doing was what we call media advocacy. So I would be the person, one of many people to call like reporters and call news editors and say, are you going to cover this? Or like your coverage of this is missing this big thing. And I think I had just reached a saturation point with that. And, and the nonsense of language became so intense. What do you mean by that? Like, it's very strange to have to re-narrate your humanity to people over and over again. It's it's not a normal thing to do. And then it would get even weirder and people would be like, wow, that's so articulate. Thank you. You know, and then we'd go on to the story about like the farmer's market. And that's no one's fault. Like, uh, but... It, it just the absurdity became so extreme to as to be unbearable. So I, you know, I just stopped like writing press releases and alerts and things. And I just didn't want to do any of that. But I felt like I was drowning. And this just came pouring out. And I think it was years of of that, really. I never posted poems on social media. And it exploded. It started to come back to me in other languages, like people would translate it. People had filmed videos of themselves, people I didn't know and had never met, like around the world. The phone rings and someone who knows my first name calls and says in perfect Arabic, this is David. On subways? Yeah. This is David. And in my stupor of sonic booms and glass shattering symphonies still smashing around in my head, I think, do I know any Davids in Gaza? They call us- Irish parliament? Yeah. They call us now to say, run. You have 58 seconds from the end of this message. Your house is next. They think of it- The Irish Parliament is a more recent iteration because one of the weird, wonderful and horrible things about this poem is that it keeps being relevant. 
So the Irish Parliament, or I think it might have been a Scottish uh, representative that that read it, if I'm remembering correctly. This was like a year ago. So like it's been a poem of multiple wars now. And there was something really very moving and human about people, human beings finding it. And I felt like they were saying to me, yes, this is crazy. This is not okay. And that was their way of saying it back and and all of us saying it together because this isn't about me as an individual. But it also just felt wild that like, we all know this and nobody's able to do it. It feels like no one's able to do anything. And, and so the simultaneous profound humanity that this poem has, uh, you know, been responded to with and the, just the amazing lack of power that we all have as human beings, like they live together in this poem. So do you feel like because this poem is universal, it's almost like it dooms itself? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there are days when I'm like, I really wish I had, uh, I wish this poem would just leave me alone. (laughs) Um, But, you know, again, this is not about me. Um, the poem was in service to a moment and it's a humble offering. And I'm super grateful to, you know, the journey it has had and continues to have in the world because it's for something much bigger than one person. Um, and so for that, I'm, and there are others, you know, other poems out there that in the world that, that do this work. And so it, it feels so intense every time. I would love for it to become part of the past. That's my huge dream. I used to write songs and I remember struggling with them and trying to figure out what they were trying to tell me and, and what the, how the, how the story was going to go. And some songs just took forever or never, never became anything. And just a few songs. I sat down, I put my hands down on the page and it came down in one fell swoop. So where on that spectrum did making this poem or being there to escort it to life? What was, where was that on that spectrum for you? That's so beautiful to hear your description of that. It, it was pretty close to one fell swoop, maybe like a couple of small couple swoops. <laughs> yeah, but but pretty much one big one. I feel like we're definitely talking about labor at this point. <laughs> <laughs> labor and delivery. Um, I think I'd mentioned before that, you know, I spend a lot of time writing op-eds and press releases. And, you know, that's a kind of language, that's a, a style of language. And it is supposed to be very direct and succinct, but actually you're doing a lot of dancing because you have to say things just so, and you have to make sure that you don't, you know, shut somebody down out the gate by saying a certain word that they haven't, you know, so there's all this like political stuff you have to do when you write these documents that often felt way too gentle and way too soft and way too cushioned to me. And in retrospect, I think that there was a stripping down of the language. Like I just had to get so much clutter and so much uh, so much of those niceties out of the way. Like if you look at the text of the poem, it's very bare bones. You know, it's just a very straightforward narration of this thing happens and these things are thought and these things are felt. And one, you know, like there's just not a lot of flourish. And, and it took a long time to get to that to be able to do that. And I, there, there was a, a kind of a loss of hope in a certain thing that had to happen so that I could do that. You have to have seen some horrific things 
And what we have all, I mean, it's anybody can see this. It's not now that everybody has a camera in their hand. It's hard to hide these things. It's all there. And it. I think that that also that sense of like, my God, how is this all so visible and you still can't see it? And so there's a, an element of trying to make a picture with words. I realize also in retrospect that I must have been doing that like, I know I'm looking at this. I'm pretty sure you're looking at this. How are you not seeing it? And so this was like this kind of need for me to say the thing that is seen as close to that as, as humanly possible. This poem, Running Orders, has been translated into a bunch of languages. Can you talk about what that was like for you to watch happen? The first one I, I was made aware of was in Spanish. And then someone sent me a message saying, I want you to know I have translated this into Hebrew and we're reading this at a Seder. And I, you know, like, good luck recovering from that. And so people would would write to tell me that they had done that. Some in the beginning there was, do you mind? And they were just like, I did this. And and there was a kind of urgency about it that matched the poem and the moment. And so I've always felt like it's a huge, a huge gift for people to do that. But yeah, it, it is deeply humbling to watch this poem travel. And it reminds me that, you know, there's a lot of sort of talk about art with a capital A. There's this great quote from Robert Frost about, you know, a poem beginning as a lump in the throat, that it's a kind of homesickness, lovesickness. And, and this was that for sure. And so, you know, it's important to me that people continue to feel that it belongs to them. You've said that you don't like your poems labeled as political. Why do you find this label reductive? Because I don't understand what a not political poem is. I don't know. I, I really have tried to think about what do people mean when they say that? So if I, as a Palestinian, write a poem about daffodils, is it political? Is it because I'm a Palestinian? You know, if <laughs> and how is a poem about daffodils not political? If you're only talking about daffodils in a war, that is also political, like Poems are a lot about what we say and what we leave out, you know, and so I just I don't I genuinely do not understand what a poem that isn't political is. It feels like a redundant thing to say because poetry compresses language and in that compression are a set of very specific choices that are usually engaging a moment and a reality. And I'm not someone who thinks of the moments that we live or the realities that we live in as somehow being separate and not political. I don't understand that way of thinking. So it's weird for me to find the poem sort of labeled that way as if it's like a, you know, a danger warning. I think it's dangerous to read poems about daffodils when there's a war going on. So it's clear that this poem really touched people, uh, especially because they made it their own, both in language and in performance and in the time and place at which they choose to read it and recite it. Um, what do you think it's done in terms of how people think about the situation in Gaza? Do you think it's changed any minds, softened any hearts? I know you can't take the temperature of the entire human animal, but what are, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? I have no idea whose mind it may or may not have changed. What I'm certain of is 
it along with other works of art. So I don't mean to suggest in any way that only my poem, but it stands alongside other works, I hope, that have made it impossible for people to contend with this war, this ongoing war, and pretend that there aren't just real human beings' lives at stake. I hope that the college application and the wedding album and the bread, you know, are, are a necessary haunting. And I think often we, we get to talk about places where there is conflict or apartheid or aggression, and we get to kind of put that in the eighth paragraph, and it belongs in the lead. And so I hope, you know, the son's favorite blanket stays in the lead as a result of this poem. Your grandfather was Husni Fariz, the poet laureate of Jordan and one of the country's most beloved poets. Um, he died in 1991. What do you think he would say about your poetry career and this poem in particular? Jeez. <laughs> um, you know, I hope he's proud. Um, I took, uh, God, that really caught me off guard. Sorry. It's okay. Take your time. He's been gone for so long and you would think it happened yesterday. You know, we were very close. Um, yeah, I admired him more than anyone. And so I didn't write for a long time because I felt like, well, that's, you know, he's the poet. Um, so when the book, when my book came out, the one that Running Orders is in Water and Salt, we've I did a book tour in several Arab countries and I took the book home to his house in Ahmed. Both my grandparents uh, are past and I put it on his bookshelf and his bookshelf to me is like the most sacred thing. And so I opened the, like, it's a cabinet with these like glass sliding doors and I slid the glass and snuck my book in there and it felt like a love letter, you know? So I hope he's proud. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Thank you. Thank you for telling me about that. Well, Lena Halaf Tufaha, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. This was a huge pleasure. I'm really grateful. When we get back, what were the most difficult responses Annalyn McCord got after she published a poem about a parallel universe in which she was Vladimir Putin's mother? The thing that hurt me was that my mom didn't check in on me. It hurt. And a comedy writer gets serious about a collective sense of exasperation around war spending. The way that I wrote it was like an exhale. Like the whole thing is a sigh. That poem is a sigh. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're talking about anti-war poetry going viral. Later, you'll hear from a comedy writer who wrote a very serious poem about American war budgets and what she thinks the response to it says about humanity. But first, Anna Lynn McCord is an actor known for her roles in the FX series Nip Tuck, the CW's 90210, and most recently, ABC's Secrets and Lies. When the Ukraine-Russia war first started, she thought a lot about Vladimir Putin. And she thought about Putin's mother. And what if she had been his mother? How would the world be different? So she pondered some more. She wrote a poem about it, videotaped herself reading the poem, and she posted it on Twitter. Dear President Vladimir Putin, I'm so sorry that I was not your mother. If I was your mother, you would have been so loved, held in the arms of joyous light, Never would the story's plight, the world unfurled before our eyes, a pure demise of nations sitting peaceful under a night sky. If I was your mother, the world would have been warm, so much laughter and joy, and nothing would harm. I can't imagine the stain, the soul-stealing pain that the little boy you must have seen and believed, and the formulation of thought quickly taught that you lived in a cruel, unjust world. Is this why you now decide no one will get the best of you? Is this why you... And then people got kinda mean. There were tweets in response to her poem that read like, maybe Putin will see this and cringe so hard his skull will cave in on itself. And this should be a war crime. And yes, more tummy time would have prevented this. She was even mocked in a sketch on Saturday Night Live. The point is we need fresh ideas from you guys about how we can win the information war on social media. So, yeah, you. Hey, guys, I'm an actress from the CW. Great, what's your name? Actress from the CW. (laughs) And while Putin might have tanks and bombs, there's something even more powerful we can attack him with. Poems. Oh, no, it's that girl. (laughs) Dear Vladimir Putin, if I was your mother, I would have loved you more. If I was your wife, I would have been so, so, so mad at you. If I was your baby brother... Thank you, thank you. I think, yeah, we got it. To make matters worse... 
Twitter has a two minute and 20 second time limit on videos. So the entire end of her poem got cut off. Something she did not realize at the time. Anna Lynn talked with me about why she felt drawn to consider the childhood of the Russian president. She herself has been open about the violence that she experienced in her youth. I know how I am with children, and I've worked with children for 15 years, children who are severely traumatized, survivors of sex trafficking, children who have stories not, you know, even worse than mine, but not unlike mine. And I just knew that if if that little baby named Vladimir was mine, his life would go in a different trajectory. But it wasn't about that. It was about, we always used to say it takes a village to raise children, right? So it didn't become this like ownership of a child until really until the agricultural age, after the hunter gatherers, when we used to all care for each other. And then in communities like Cambodia, where my charity for anti-trafficking is based, it's still very communal. We, we, everybody grabs the kids and whoever wants, you know, everybody's mom and everybody's dad. And, and we're all looking out for the little ones. And there is in the Western culture, this very like my children don't touch my child. It's just this, you know, um, but it was kind of a, I am you are we, if we were his mother and we loved him in a way that expressed love, would he need to then think of Russia as mother Russia when he's actually of Georgian descent? Which I thought I thought was the most ironic part of all of this. The first country he invades is his own country. His biological mother was in love with a Georgian soldier who did not want Vladimir. And she gave him up when he was two years old. And he was then put with his officially sanctioned mother, Maria, I believe her name is. But I don't know. I don't know the relationship that he had with his officially sanctioned mother, which sounds super close and cuddly. But I do know the that by 24 months old, a child has already determined their attachment style, right? So they do in psychotherapy, they do the stranger experiment, right? Where they're, the child is placed with a, you know, with a stranger, they play toys and then the primary caregiver comes back. And, and then based on the child's reactions, you can see between zero to 24 months, they, they've already, they've already developed their attachment style. And if your mother gave you up in that early time, what's coded in your cells is not great. <laughs> and then he lived at a time when there was a lot of unrest and war and a lot of things going on. So what I learned from, from Malcolm Nance's writings and from all the intel that he was able to collect on Vladimir was that it, you know, by age 14, he wanted to be in on, he w went to an event with naval officers and was trying to figure out how he could get in early. He wanted to fight for Mother Russia. There's something missing there, and he was filling a void, and I know what that's like. And so I was humanizing someone that everybody wants to remain a villain, and that's why that's why I don't think that it was appreciated very much. And I, and I respect, what do they say, the court of public opinion, because we should all be able to share. I just happened to share my side, and I... I didn't share it w without thought. So for me, the I, I, got, I saw a tweet recently that had tagged me and it was like, can't believe she still has this poem up. We need more like her, wrong and strong. <laughs> <laughs> some of the comments were really supportive, but some were not. What were some that really stung? 
Well, I will say in the beginning of my career as an actress, I made a vow to myself that I would never believe the good stuff that they say about me, because if I believe the good stuff, then I have to buy into the bad stuff. So I actually didn't read anything. My friends were panicking and texting. I refused to go online because for me, I, I work with energy. I, I'm a, like obsessed with the energy world, the quantum world, and I am not trying to screw with my vibration. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. So I was like, um, this is a vibrational resonance that I don't want in my nervous system. So I'm going to not click on this. <laughs> Obviously, when I when my friends were like, you're on SNL um, and people are doing TikTok reenactments. And then I did see some of those, which I personally was just remarkably flattered because I had no idea. But I, I, I think that there, you know, I, I'll be really honest the the thing that hurt me was that my mom didn't check in on me. Of all people for a poem about motherhood. I literally wrote a poem about if I was your mother and my mother never. And I finally talked to her 10 days later. And I was like, I got to be really honest. It hurt that you didn't even, that you, there's no world where you didn't know. And she's like, well... I mean, people were saying things and I, I, I was bullied when I was a kid and I was like, which means you should have really said, I'm so sorry that you're being bullied by the whole world. <laughs> and, and, and for me, that was more to me, what was important was the war that was going on. Like if you actually watch the whole poem and then I did figure out that it wasn't fully there and I was like, oh, okay, I understand why people are tripping out. Um, I was like, please watch the ending. <laughs> but I was asking Putin, how many more little boys have to lose their moms? How many more little children have to be disenfranchised and turned to hate and anguish and, and a, a displaced sense of, of fealty and, and, and what he has, you know, I mean, he bows at the feet of Mother Russia. He wants Holy Rus, you know, the, the Soviet Union reconnected and it's become his life's mission. And he has a sense of purpose because of it. And, and I've played villains my entire career as an actress. So the first thing, if you're going to be an, a, an actor, you cannot judge your characters. So I'm, I don't call my characters villains. They're people with extenuating circumstances who do very extreme things. I think that there's a belief in our world that if you don't hate the person I hate, then you're evil too. And this is becoming more and more apparent in... American politics and in our country in the U.S., here in the U.S., because if you don't hate the other party, which I'm so against the two-party system to begin with, but if you don't hate the opposing party, you're evil and terrible and should be like literally hung or guillotined or something ridiculous. It's it's become so divisive and dramatically divisive. And I can say that as an actress because it's way more dramatic than me and I am paid to be dramatic. So this is, I mean, it's, it's, I, I always find the humor of situations just to lighten the blow, but th this is not funny. And, and, and what I was saying 
isn't funny either. But for me, I told one of the people interviewing me, I said, you know, I have this handicap. I don't treat the symptoms. I, I want to find a solution and I get stuck on it. I kind of get stuck on the root problem and wanting a solution. And that's the only way to solve something is to look at the root. So I don't look at Putin as villain at 70. I look at two-year-old Putin and say, how did this happen and how can we avoid it in the future? And we should have asked that in the 40s, but apparently we haven't asked enough questions because we're doing it again. History is repeating itself again and, and people are losing their lives as a result every single day. So, so my, I can't, I can't say a lot. Like I will say a lot of the rhetoric and feedback was like, oh, Alan saved, saved Ukraine with a poem. And I was like, okay, um, thank you so much for your sarcasm. Cause I do actually appreciate sarcasm. I enjoy myself, but at the same time, I'm not serving this country. I'm not serving our world in a military capacity. I'm an artist. That's what I do. I, that's where my limitations are as well. So all I can do is offer what I know and what I have. And and one of the things that one of my friends in media was like, I, I was like, look, I could have become a dictator. And he was like, don't say that. And I was like, I, I think I already did in that email that I responded to the post with. Because I was so sleepy. I just woke up from the nap and I was like, I was like, oh, I'll comment. I don't care. I still hadn't seen that it had gone viral, viral. I was like, oh, oh, maybe some news people follow me because I was so naive to the process of going viral. But now I've been schooled on it. But I I said the situ the the torture and, and abuse and things that I sustained as a child were so extensive. They call such hate and such darkness inside of me that that I really I I love the quote from Jack Cornfield and I'm not sure if he's quoting someone saying it but I I heard it from him. He's a Buddhist teacher and he said there are two great forces in our world. Those who are unafraid to kill and those who are unafraid to love. And I was unafraid to kill for a long time. And if I was in a situation that was threatening and I have been in threatening situations and I needed to fight for my life, I'm 110 pounds. I'm only five foot seven, but I'd put up a pretty hellish fight. I am now unafraid to love. And that means that I can love the villains of our world because I can see a different side. And if I'm hated for that, then I receive the hate with gratitude because I don't want to be on the side that I used to be on. I don't like that side. That's the side Putin's on. And I'm not on that side anymore. So this was a, an offering of a life lived in war and battle for my own life. When you want to end your life every day, you are at war. Even if you don't put on Kevlar and, and weaponry and, and go to the front lines, you're in a different kind of battle. So I know what... I know the gravitas it takes to step into the light when you've lived in the dark shadows for a very long time. So everything that I write has a little bit of those pieces of me. And, you know, you got to take it or leave it. <laughs> I feel like the reaction to your poem in some ways is an indicator that society is not really evolving towards a forgiving nature. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I, I guess maybe it's all the compassion work, but I, I just have such a heart for everyone that got so mad because, because they like, 
there, you don't, happy people don't hurt other people, you know? And if there, that many people got that angry, oh, we have so much pain, so many hurting people in our world. So for me, I was just like, oh, you all need hugs. <laughs> that was just my response. I like everything goes to a hug. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell you. I was so close for so much of my life. But I, I, you know, I did think and a few friends were like, you do know that at this point, Putin has seen that someone has shown this to him. I was like, that actually is a really funny thought. Like, I mean, out of all the things that he probably thinks is wrong with our country, he definitely probably did not appreciate <laughs> the poem at all. <laughs> like, she's trying to make me this soft, you know, whatever. I was just like, I'm sure if you're trying to be a big, tough dictator man, that it's probably to, to make that picture in the mind of people. And that was a meme that became, uh, I was like Annalyn with a baby in her arms and they cut off the head. They put the head of Putin <laughs> on baby bodies. And I will say, I just, I love humor. So I really, I, I fully appreciated all of the memes. It was like me pushing a stroller. <laughs> like those, I was like my friends. I was like, you can send me the funny stuff. I don't want any of the toxic stuff, but the funny stuff I, I still, I appreciate. Is there anything you would have done differently? I probably would have checked the cutoff time on the Twitter app. <laughs> I probably would have been like, oh, my poem goes like for another two minutes. I should probably like do a link instead. <laughs> um, that's the only thing. But I, I don't believe in mistakes. I believe everything is as it should be, you know, so... I appreciate platforms like yours that allow me to explain my heart on things that are less, that aren't so simple to understand, I guess. Annalyn McCord, thank you so much for talking with me. Absolutely. Honored and pleasure. I hope we get to do it again sometime. After the break, a writer whose poem about war spending went viral. What makes me hopeful is that so many people care. It just makes kind of holding it lighter. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You came and saved me, my darling child, my darling baby, my darling child. God gave you to This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Danielle Weisberg is a comedy writer and writer's assistant who's worked on Conan, The Simpsons, and most recently, the Fox animated comedy Crapopolis. And since childhood, she's turned to poetry to work out her feelings. So when the latest violence in Gaza began, she posted this poem to Twitter. There's always money for war, but my mom has been buying her own classroom supplies for 44 years. There's always money for war, but my generation drowns in debt we were told is necessary for success. There's always money for war, but when we get sick, we crowdfund for medicine. There's always money for war, but homes sit empty while more people become homeless every day. There's always money for war, but food prices rise while wages sit unchanged for decades. There's always money for war, but not for funding, art, or science, or childcare, or health, or... There's always money for war in the greatest country in the world. 
Thank you. Will you take me back to the moment you started swiping your fingers across the screen and creating this poem? What was going on in you and in the world? So kind of whenever I have big thoughts, I write notes to myself in my phone. I also have very trigger happy fingers on Twitter (laughs) because I have come to my own conclusions that it's better when I don't shut myself up. So I, the combination of those things led to this where I was having a lot of thoughts about particularly what's going on in Israel and Palestine. And we're very good at funding destruction. So I really, I wrote it in two minutes. I had no idea this response would be so huge because I write a lot of word vomit things on Twitter, but sometimes my tweets come out in the forms of poems because that's what my brain is doing. And I just kept thinking of things that were not taken care of, but were so eager to be like, oh, new aid package for more bombs. And then the next the next day or the day after that was when they approved the aid package for Israel. I think it's like 14 billion or something. And I was just like, oh, what's that word? Like clairvoyant, because this happens all the time. But the timing was interesting to me where I was like, oh, yeah, I was having these thoughts. And then like the next day, it was like, surprise, we're sending all this money abroad. Not to help anyone. It's just for machinery. What of the responses have been negative or challenging or gross? There's two categories. One that I always get when things go viral is just like the very basic anti-Semitism. I'm Jewish. My name is super Jewish and so is my face. So I'm like, whatever. But you know, those Twitter accounts that are all like crypto, Bitcoin, the economy, a lot of those were coming in and being like, that's not how budgets work. I was like, this is a poem. And also it is how budgets work because there's a certain finite amount of money if you don't count our national debt that is divided amongst interests. And I'm saying we're using it for the wrong things. So to say, I don't know how a budget works because our war budget is so inflated and our other budgets are so minimalized just made me laugh. So I was like, maybe you don't know how budgets work. <laughs> but they're like, the money for the defense system is not the money we use for social services. And I was like, I know that's what I'm saying. <laughs> in the opening line of the poem, you mentioned your mother, who was a school teacher, and she had to buy her own supplies, which is a common story. And it's kind of perfect that you started with that, because I think if anyone knows anyone who teaches... You also know someone who's bought supplies and, and, and from their own pocket. What does your mom think about this poem and what's become of it? She said, I liked your poem. And I was like, thanks, mommy. But yeah, it's, I come from a a line of public school teachers in Los Angeles. And it is just like, you look around and the way classrooms specifically are funded, at least in the school district that I know um, and I'm familiar with is you get a lot of the very basics. And then there's, depending on parent involvement and parent fundraising, a budget for additional things. And then teachers fill in the gaps. And the way they do that is out of their own pocket or this website my mom uses called Donors Choose, which is actually a great website um, where teachers 
like they list projects they want to do in the budget for it. And then they get funded for that specific project. Like a GoFundMe for teachers. It's like GoFundMe for teachers, except because so many of the projects are in the grand scheme of things small, things get funded really quickly if they're spread fast enough on Twitter. So like you can look through my tweets. I've tweeted her donors choose projects many times, but like, it'll be like, we want this set of books for early handwriting practice. And they come with like those really big chunky pencils for dexterity practice. And they're maybe the total cost is $300. So if I post that online, maybe it'll get funded because I have like 30,000 followers. So things like that shouldn't have to happen. (laughs) That should just be part of the budget. What are your feelings when it comes to hopefulness or hopelessness with this disparity of there's always money for war. There's always money for war. <laughs> and we have GoFundMes for teachers. Uh, where where do you, today, how do you feel about all that? It really goes back and forth. I mean, there are some days when I'm like, there is no way with the current administration and the current system that is so frustratingly cemented that we're ever going to get to a place where social services take priority over helping countries that we're allies with for oil, basically. It's mostly just oil. And that does make me feel hopeless a lot. But what makes me hopeful is that so many people care. And it's not always the people in office. It often is not the people in office. But when there are so many people who care, it just makes kind of holding it lighter. Can I pretend that I'm a know-it-all world leader for a second and we role play? Yeah. Okay. Fun. Here we go. Oh, wait. Who am I being? You're going to be you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Hey, little lady. I saw your cute little poem about war budgets. Hey, listen. If we didn't have a monster war budget that grows and grows, then you wouldn't be safe and you wouldn't even be able to tweet your little cute little poem. What do you say to that, Missy? Um, Two things. One, if you think you're insulting me by calling me little lady, you're wrong because I love that. Two, most white people think like, but what about the terrorists? And what about 9-11? And it's like, if you think of the retaliation that we as a country gave back to them, in the name of like our freedom. And then we don't even have the freedom to get an abortion. (laughs) It's just like, what freedoms are we protecting? So yeah, there's, there's a lot that I think people conflate freedom with our military when they have very little to do with each other. Cause there's a lot of other countries that have a lot more freedoms and much smaller militaries. What do you think it says that your poem was in many ways read more than some news articles about what's going on in Gaza? I don't know. What do you make out of that? What do you think that means? I think I struck a little luck with this in that my feelings were about the truth. So maybe that's why it got as big as it did, because it's not like you can't deny anything that I said in it because it's just true. But the way that I wrote it was like an exhale. 
was what I was picturing. Like the whole thing is a sigh. That poem is a sigh. And, you know, also a lot of people consider poetry kind of confusing and harder to grasp. And this was just, this had no form aside from utilizing repetition. So I think the first third of it seemed like I was just complaining. And then the second third was like, oh, this is a list. And then the final third was the title, which also is not super typical. But I think the format of it was more approachable. It sounds like you are glad you wrote this poem and there's still quite a bit of sighing left to do possibly eternally on your behalf. Yeah. Yeah. I'm real, I'm real big on sighing. Um, that's good. That means you're breathing. Yeah, that's true. Um, you can only sigh if you've inhaled. So that's true. I'm very glad I wrote it. I'm more glad that I shared it. I'm even more glad that people responded to it overwhelmingly positively. If it made a dent in anything, that's pretty cool. Just like as a writer, that's kind of all I want. I mean, besides healthcare, that'd be pretty cool. But um, hey, listen, we have wars. So your healthcare thing, yes, yeah, it up. doesn't matter. Um, it's very cool when something that I don't plan on even writing and sharing, because this was so on a whim, connects with as many people as it did. That's pretty cool. It's just words which I think is awesome because words can make you feel all sorts of things. So the fact that I could put some together in a way that made people feel anything, it's very cool. And there's a poem that I love. It's framed on my wall. Actually, my grandma gave it to me, but it's the Emily Dickinson poem. If I could stop one heart from breaking, the gist of it is like, if I could stop one heart from breaking, I would not have lived in vain. And that has kind of been my poetry and life guide like if you can just do one good thing then that's enough well danielle weisberg thank you so much for talking with me thank you for inviting me to talk to you so nice you can find all the poets you heard from today at ctpublic.org audacious plus we'll have a link to the donors choose page for danielle's mom miss weisberg in topanga california Thanks, Ms. Weisberg. Audacious is always lovingly produced by Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin DiMartinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, with help from our courageous interns, Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kion Wolf. And you can always send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.